Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, and Emergency Management Podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle, and I will be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment, and what can we learn from this experience? From AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications, there's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges, and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emergency Management Society. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast with Kyle King. That's me. I'm the Managing Director of Capacity Building International. And today I'm joined by Dana Hoffman, who is a city and transportation Planning professional focused on sustainable transportation, infrastructure planning, hazard mitigation, and climate change mitigation and adaptation strategies. Dana has 11 years of experience working with local governments on long-range plans to achieve more sustainability and a developed future. She's focused on climate impact and making our cities more livable, equitable, and environmentally resilient through smart land use and transportation plans and policies. Dana leads the climate mitigation and adaptation-related initiatives for the city of Denver, Department of Transportation Engineering with a focus on transportation while also supporting these efforts for other infrastructure projects overseen by the department. So, Dana, thanks for joining us today on the show. It's really great to have you here. Yeah, I'm glad to join. Thanks for inviting me. So, you're currently joining us from Australia. Yeah. So, good for you. Thanks for sort of staying up late and having a chat with us. No problem. Glad to be on. Now, I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about with you specifically in terms of transportation and, of course, in towards more sustainable cities and, and communities was really the the struggle that I've seen happen, I think, specifically in a lot of European cities. And I'm just saying that because, you know, I, I live in Europe. I'd love to get your sort of perspective on this, but there's been just so so many sort of discussions and they eventually turn political about sort of balancing transportation, sustainability especially in large cities like Berlin, you know, Amsterdam, other cities that want to really balance out community development, transportation needs and requirements, and, and eventually overall sustainability of their communities. And so I wanted to bring you on the show and just sort of hear some of the perspectives about what you do in your day-to-day work and some of the challenges that you see in your field and, you know, where are we progressing and where are we going and how do we get there? And I thought we'd just sort of start with that. So what is it like for you and your sort of day-to-day work that you're doing and what are the topics you're dealing with? Yeah, I mean, that that is a big tension, right? All of the balancing act of our roadways and how we use them for many, many different purposes. So historically, so I've been working with the city of Denver for about five years now. I just changed roles to be really more climate-focused, which I'm excited about, but I actually spent the last four-plus years really working on bike and pedestrian-related projects the city has a pretty aggressive goal. I think over the last five years, we installed 125 miles of new bike facilities. So we're not really on the same level as some of those European cities that you're talking about, but that same tension has been happening where we're really trying to bring more bicycle infrastructure, better pedestrian infrastructure, and then working with our transit agency too, into a city that historically is kind of a cow town, right? Big trucks, people driving everywhere. We have a pretty strong bike culture as well. So that's all in that space. And we have a strong environmental ethic. One of the reasons I have my new role is that City of Denver opted into a sales tax that's going to fund a climate protection fund. 
it's pretty big tax. So there's a lot of support for sustainability, but that tension of when you look at a given roadway, and that's where my job has been the last you know four or five years, is when we look and we have a planned network that's every fourth mile, we're going to have a safe, bikeable space. But when you look at that given street, there's always give and take, right? Sometimes it's removing parking from that street. Sometimes it's changing the nature of the street and how many lanes of travel there are. So there's just always a trade-off involved. And it's an ongoing conversation with community members about what that trade-off looks like and understanding the bigger picture. I think a lot of the time it's it's bringing people back to that second that second level. We all want to have a more sustainable system. We as a growing city can't just do it by adding more roadway. We have to change the paradigm and move towards these other modes of transportation. And we have to do it in a way that makes sense. So sometimes we're changing the design based on community feedback. And sometimes it's just a matter of education and communication. And it does end up getting political sometimes. And sometimes we can come up with creative designs that make it work. So it's a really a mixed bag, but it's exciting to see the momentum as we move towards a more bikeable city in Denver. So it's rewarding work, even though it's challenging. You know, I was, I was recently visiting the States and I was struck by the fact that when you're living in a European city, a lot of these areas are bikeable. There's obviously the mass transportation in a lot of areas. And it's the same in the States, right? You go to bigger cities like New York and, and Chicago, and there's transportation systems and everything else like that, and, and in many other cities across the state. So, but it was also sort of shocking at, at how there was a lack of overall transportation and, and different modalities outside of sort of city limits, right? Um, and outside of sort of a certain zone, then everything just sort of stops and you're on your own. Going anywhere is is sort of vehicle driven and everything else like that. But so really a lack of sort of the trains and the rail networks and what we're sort of used to in a European environment to be able to just sort of jump on a train and, and go to different regions or districts and things like that. And so it is interesting to see that sort of difference in, in almost the transportation culture between the United States and also Europe. And so what are the, some of the challenges that you're facing when trying to evolve communities and the urban planning? environment? And what are some of the, the common discussions that you're having when you're trying to integrate these more sustainable solutions? Yeah, I think there's sort of two big things that are challenges, right? One is the infrastructure itself. So when you think about Europe, Germany, Berlin, Berlin's really old, right? What, what Most of that infrastructure started in the, I don't even know, 900s, 1200s, where, where it goes back pretty far. When you look at a city like Denver, most of the development happened post 1960s. So the car was already the big mode of transport by and large. So that means that we had bigger blocks, for instance, just the nature of the blocks and the nature of the development is different. The challenge of density as well. So that's part and that bleeds into the cultural component, which is the second piece I want to talk about, but that we have low density housing and low density development, generally speaking, and transit specifically really does much better when you have higher density. And a lot of my career has been trying to bring together these two pieces that is sometimes obvious for people to understand, but sometimes not, that our land use decisions and our zoning decisions are just totally caught up in what the transportation network looks like and what different modes can be successful. So there's that challenge of, of shoehorning transit bike and ped into a system that was fully designed around the car. 
Sometimes that helps us in Denver, right? We have really big wide streets. So sometimes the trade-off isn't as bad as it could be if you're in a in New York and there's already narrow streets and you're trying to fit four different modes on it. It's a different kind of challenge. But by and large, having a less dense city is a really big challenge to just make it viable. And that's part of it. And then there's American culture, which is, you know, the American dream is that suburban home. The American dream is having your own truck and being able to go, having the freedom to go wherever you want, whenever you want. Moving away from that dream, even if it's not really true anymore, right? Americans are stuck in traffic all the time. We lose economically so much money on it and no one wants the, you know, the air pollution impacts. So the dream's not real, but it's hard to move people away from that and to make sure that we're doing it also in an equitable way. That's another big challenge is making sure we're thinking about investments and sustainability while also thinking about our equity communities that have been hurt in the past as we build new infrastructure. So a lot of challenges, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think culturally, you know, I think being from a, a larger state myself, like Texas, it's like you have this innate desire to have freedom to, to go everywhere. And, and that's going to remain. And I think that's not going to change. But there is sort of a, the realization, like you're saying, everybody hates traffic, right? So is there just a better way? to get around this? Or do you want to continue to spend, I don't know how many weeks they say we spend in traffic every year, but you know, the time just accumulates. And so it just becomes smarter about sort of how we design the way we interact with the environment around us. And it works to a large extent. And the density thing, I think is a great argument in terms of shifting your thinking. You can still have that low density aspect in your car and things like that if you want to live outside. But the closer you get to the city, then there's obviously different ways to sort of address these issues and deal with population movements and everything else within these urban environments. The message for me is it's a different kind of freedom to be able to hop on a train and not worry about where you're going to park and not have to worry about traffic. Certainly, we've spent most of this trip I was telling you about in Asia and spending a lot of that time in Korea, which is all new infrastructure. They built out most of their transit system not that long ago, sort of 70s and 80s. But you can go to a national park with beautiful mountains that's 40 minutes outside Seoul. And you just hop on a a bus and then you can do a one-way trail all the way to the other side of the mountain. You pick up a different bus and you head back in. And that sort of thing, especially for Denverites, they love their outdoor activities. If we can make those kinds of investments, I think that different kind of freedom message will be really helpful. But we have to actually change how we invest. And that can be really hard. It's sort of a a change in paradigm, a change in how we think about things. And then when you add the layer of resiliency, making sure that all those investments include a resiliency component, it can be hard. It's just an expensive venture and and a totally different way of thinking. And our department, you know, departments of transportation aren't known for wanting to shift and be agile. They like to have certainty and know what works. So working with engineers around those sort of innovative, less clear, hasn't been done before types of projects can be a challenge. Yeah. And speaking of sort of engineers and getting the more technical side, you know, I was recently on a panel talking about sort of military resilience. This was back in May. Maybe it's not recently, but sort of like May of last year. But some of the conversations that we were having is along the lines of, you know, we're still working with technology that we've had for 30 years or something like that, you know? And so we're still working with the best technology we have today. We're not innovating fast enough to be able to make any rapid changes. So it's, we're still, even if we create something today, it's still going to be 30 years before it can be replaced, you know? So we're still dealing with technology and then sort of, you're sort of talking about top level technology for say defense and security applications and things like that. So, you know, these 
tanks and aircraft and all these things like that will be still, you know, we'll still be around for another 20 or 30 years, right? Because it's the technology we have today. So there's this argument out there in a perspective of like, we're doing the best with what we have today. So how do we sort of address these challenges of like, you know, we can only innovate so fast and get the technology in the field to be able to sort of develop the infrastructure to develop the technology we need to be more sustainable. And especially, I think you're starting to get in that sort of climate and, and adaptation role as well. And that that's a growing thing that we see across the, the international work that we do is climate security is a growing space as well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't disagree with that argument. I don't know if you uh, read the Bill Gates book, but he, in this recent climate book, he sort of lays out very scientifically like percentages that can get done within certain frameworks. And one of those is like, what can we do with existing technology and how much can we do you know, do we need to do by developing something new? A lot of the projects that we're doing, they really aren't new technology, right? Like we're building protected bicycle lanes and that's just a different form of concrete, adding a a bollard here in this space. So the design can be a little innovative, but a lot of the, you know, the materials and stuff are pretty basic. And it's just a matter of changing the mode of practice and not doing it the way we used to do. And you can do that with a lot of these things. We can add better sidewalks. There's a lot of work, you know, that Europe and Asia have already done. So we're not reinventing the wheel when we're building a bioswale. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but bioswales is like, a, instead of a curb and gutter, you're using more sort of natural greenery to help move water and clean it and slow it down as you go. So for Denver, that's pretty new, but Frankly, we have so many other examples from cities across the U.S. and also in other countries where it's already been done before. And it's just a matter of tweaking it and getting our engineers comfortable with what someone else has done. It's obviously a little different in every climate and every space. We have to use different grasses, whatever. But a lot of it's there for us to use. And it's just finding the way to help people feel comfortable in that space. And I think that's where I come in. I'm sort of a bridge in my a new role between our climate office, which is really focused on meeting these new aggressive climate goals and climate climate programming, and they have some money behind them. And our department, which is an implementing agency, and they say, look, this works and people could die if we don't do it right. So let's just keep doing what we've been doing. And hey, if it's an extra $400 million over budget, that's your fault. Being sympathetic to that frame of mind, but also giving them the cover and the support and the resources that they need to do what they do well, but also move the direction a little bit and use some of these newer things. And again, they're not that new. I think there is a new technology space. And maybe you were talking about this a little bit about like hovercrafts are coming and we really should be adjusting to those. And that's true too, but I think a lot of sustainability can be achieved with what we already know. We just have to build it that way. I think it's an interesting sort of job or role that you have to try and be the integrator between these two sort of ideals, the ideal of like, look, this is the, and I'm just sort of assuming or speculating, presuming, whatever the case is, you know, you have just sort of the the hard infrastructure engineering side, which is like, this is what we know, this is what we can do. It's time tested. It, It works. We know it works. And this is how we develop and build these hard projects and versus the sort of the more idealistic side of we need to get to these sort of goals. We need to reach these goals. How can we push the envelope to get there? And then your role of sort of being the integrator of trying to bridge these two gaps. And I, it is interesting though, because when you do travel a lot, which I think is a, a benefit that all Americans should sort of do, 
is there's a lot of things out there that have been done for a very long time that I believe you're right. It is really just the art of the application and how we you know design our communities and, and how we rebuild or build or continue to expand. And, and one of the reasons that I think about that quite often is because we're often working at that space of what we call crisis, conflict, emergency management. And we you know, talk a lot with communities about how or what direction they should be going in. And then so you sort of have to balance the perspective of what are you capable of today versus where is the, the community going? Where are the, the goals, the objectives of the international community and in terms of things like climate security and adaptation? And then how can we sort of get there? And there's a, a growing realization, of course, if we look at the most extreme scenario of like uh, the war in Ukraine and what's happening there. And then, you know, if you were going to rebuild these societies, you know, what direction should they go? in? so it opens up this whole door of sort of the idealistic component plus the technical side. Well, you obviously want to rebuild these communities in a, in a new, robust, sustainable way. So what does that even look like? And that's a tragic, but also opportunity to sort of work with these communities and sort of go in that direction. But I think in terms of the technology and coming back to your point that the integration piece and the art of the integration is going to be, I think, even more and more important. And it is going to be a culture shift, I think, to a certain extent, because we're used to doing things the way that we do them and have done them for a long time. Yeah, it's an interesting point on Ukraine. It, it is weird, right? When a When a city burns down or other tragedy happens, you have a lot of opportunity to rebuild. And Sometimes it's really, I don't know how to say this. It seems like a blank slate, but it's never really a blank slate. So part of my previous work has been very deep in community engagement. So you'd really have to sit down with those communities and say, what from the past do we want to preserve? And what can we now, you know, move towards in terms of goals? And some of that's education about what will allow us to be more sustainable. When I talk about higher density development and those core centers, oftentimes it's an education that higher density allows for less traffic, which people, that's not intuitive. But yeah, I think that's that's like rebuilding New Orleans. There were a lot of neighborhoods that were completely wiped out. And that was a great opportunity to rebuild, but it brought up a lot of sort of difficult equity issues of people just wanting to go back to where their home was and then also saying, why do we have to change and be totally different and take on all of these new fangled practices about ways to get around when, you know, the community down the street that's not of color, that isn't a vulnerable community, didn't get hit. So, yeah, it's just it's a really fraught conversation when you're rebuilding. It seems like a great opportunity to move forward and change things and shift things, but you have to have a really vulnerable and sympathetic and long conversation with community members about what that actually means. What is the time delay there? So like, you know, using a disaster scenario and you mentioned New Orleans and things like that, these communities have been sort of decimated. And then if you wanted to sort of come in with some innovation or new ideas and towards, you know, rebuilding those communities, what is the time delay in terms of I'm trying to phrase it right in my head, right? But it, what I imagine is we're fixed in our policies, procedures, codes, standards, whatever the case is, but then we want to innovate. And you're coming in as sort of an integrator to do the application of some new ideas and maybe adjust things. Even incrementally is better than sort of, you know, staying with what you were at. But what is that time delay then? Because there's a, there is also this factor of, you know, if we are rebuilding this community, you can move rapidly because you've always done things this way and you can rebuild the house the exact same way faster than if you redesign the community. 
So what is that gap in time, I guess, is what I'm sort of struggling with, because that's also a factor of like, well, we could rebuild tomorrow and you would have your house back, or we could do this really sustainable design of your community and you'll get it back next year. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good, that's where the tension is, right? Because you want people to have their house back, but then it's just going to get flooded again in two years if you don't build it. And my director hopefully will be delighted that I say this. She really loves to say you got to move slow to move fast. It's like one of her favorite phrases. And the idea behind that is you really need to build community support and have a common vision. Otherwise, you're going to start building down the line and then it's going to all blow up in your face because the community vision's not there. The community support's not there. So just doing like a new neighborhood plan, we might go through a six to eight month planning process. And that's before you finalize design. And then you might want to change your building codes. Ukraine might look at where they are now and say, you know what, our building regulations are just not even where we want them to be anymore. So you you have to reinvent the wheel on those pieces. And all of that does take time. And that's tough if people are living in sort of a state of limbo. So it can it can take many years to really build back. One of the places we visited on this trip was Christchurch in New Zealand. And they had a horrible earthquake that basically resulted in them tearing down about 80% of the CBD. And that was in 2012, I believe. They still have just huge empty lots today. So what what are we at, you know, at least a decade later. And they're still rebuilding a lot of their structures. So just getting back to where you started can take a couple decades, depending on, on what's out, what the lay of the land is. And we have that issue on the international space as well. You know, if we come in with these higher level ideological sort of perspectives and recommendations, there's always going to be this gap between sort of what the nation is capable of and then sort of the institutional change required, the cultural change required. And then, you know, if you just come in, like you hear very often sort of international work of like, well, just go to this international standard or go to the EU standard of this. Well, there's sort of same conversations are happening on the international space, which is like, okay, well, do you rebuild the school? the way it was so you can resume life or do you like start to get into this whole technology piece and like you know the investment and then having to do that top-down legislative piece and then reinvestment and then how does that money flow through the national government and sort of get fought amongst the regions to the municipalities to be eventually invested in the school or can you just rebuild it quickly you know yeah (laughs) and i think that prohibits a lot of change because it's overwhelming and I recently had a conversation about like, for example, the bunkers and bunker systems. Again, if we were using that Ukraine example, but more so if you look at like Finland and they have these, a very interesting design aspect within their communities of every building has a bunker underneath it. And so every apartment building, house, everything is regulated by their codes and standards to have a bunker underneath of it, which is a full bunker with like blast doors and air filtration and all sorts of stuff. And they learned that sort of post-World War II. And so they, you know, over 50, 60 years, they have integrated that as part of their society in this civil defense aspect. And they have a lot of it in Switzerland too. But the idea being, okay, well, if you wanted to institute that now, like in communities that don't have that, you're like, that's a lot of work. And I'm not sure people are like, that's just overwhelming if you start talking about that stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. I do think... You do need to bring in the stick at some level, right? Like our 
federal government, and I sometimes you just needs to play the bad guy, right? They say this money can only be spent if it meets these sustainability criteria. And then local government can come in and say, those bad guys say we need to do this. We're going to help you out. And then let's try and make that those, whatever the build back better is, make it ours, make it something our community can be proud of. But hey, the bad guys say we got to at least do it this way to get the funding. I don't know. That's maybe a little cynical perspective over here, but I think that can work because it is really hard to move the needle without someone having a stick. And we all know that we can't continue to build the way we have. Our FEMA budget is looking really bad even today. So it's, you know, the change has to happen. And we've been having that conversation and how FEMA funds things for probably a decade now. But when it comes to post-disaster, it's just always hard to say no. So you kind of have to start here and have legitimate hazard plans in place. Like every community is supposed to have a hazard mitigation plan that's up to date. And the idea is that if this thing does happen, there's at least some idea that's a community vision about where you can move forward without starting from scratch. I'm sure there's examples out there where people have done it, but I think they're far and few between as opposed to sort of the expediency of rebuilding quickly so you can resume normalcy. And sort of because that's, I think, the driving factor for a lot of people, which is understandable. Like I just, like you mentioned, I just want to get back to my house and sort of resume and get back to where I was pre-disaster. But, you know, these are some of the challenges we're faced with today. When you're looking sort of out towards the future and, and seeing some of the things coming up over the next five or 10 years, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing within your domain and, and from your perspective? I talked a little bit about this before. Is thinking more creatively about sort of multi-use, I guess is how I'd put it, or sort of dynamic infrastructure. I'll coin that term. I don't know if that has meaning, but whenever we do have the opportunity to rebuild something, thinking about it, not just a new road or building a new canal. Like, so we're in the city of Denver, they're wanting to rebuild a lot of our stormwater infrastructure that runs, you know, two major creeks sort of run right underneath the main part of the city. And it's a major flood risk sort of day-to-day flooding, but also the 100-year flood. So moving backwards, you have to start at the top and then move all the way upstream. Is building not just a big pipe in the ground, which is the temptation, because that's what we did before, but then also providing the, the green infrastructure components. So can we, instead of building the big pipe, create a surface system that runs along a major community roadway and make it a community asset and a park at the same time. So I, there's some examples of that that are pretty obvious, you know, like our detention ponds can also be a park and that's been done before, but I think we need to do that with every single piece of infrastructure moving forward. Like anytime we make an investment, we need to be thinking about that multi-purpose and that resilience piece. And that's where a lot of creativity is to come in and like, I don't know, who knows that stuff? That's the stuff I feel like I need to be suggesting with every project and finding the people who have those ideas and how they work is is one challenge. And the equity component is also just so difficult. I guess this is my personal opinion, but we as a planning profession, urban planners, probably one of our biggest errors of the last century was building a highway system in the United States that was meant to connect people. And then we built those highways right through communities. And usually they were communities of color, vulnerable communities, and they end up functioning instead of connecting people, they're a big wall that divide those communities from economic viability and from their neighbors. 
So we now have $2 trillion infrastructure bill that got passed last year by the Biden administration. It's a big deal. It's the, probably the biggest investment since we built the highway system. But with all that money, I feel like there's the chance that we could make those kind of errors again. Sometimes that was unintentional. Sometimes it was very intentional about where they built those highways. But in making these new investments and racing forward towards what we think is more sustainable, I think sometimes we can make that same mistake of not listening to those communities and harming them more than helping them. So how do I, on a daily basis, have reducing vehicle miles traveled, which is how I think about reducing our emissions, be my top goal, but also you can't do that without bringing our equity communities to the table. And sometimes their goals just, they're more worried about safely walking down the street at night than they are about having a fancy new EV charger in their neighborhood. So those things tend to butt heads. So we really need to be thinking about them together and robustly. So I think that is a really big challenge for us as we we spend all this, this new infrastructure money across the nation. I do think that those are often different dynamics that we do have to explore because like you just mentioned, I mean, there's this sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And then unless nobody cares about an EV charger, if you can't walk the streets at night or if there's no jobs in your community or whatever the case is. It, it is quite interesting on the one comment that you had about sort of having these professionals that are able to, or having this creative ability, whether that's through people or process or whatever it is, in terms of being able to determine the value added for each community across this, for example, pipeline that's going across multiple communities. It's like, where's the value added for that? Can it be integrated? And is it sustainable? And I, I think that that's a, a very interesting point because we often think in terms of sort of end-to-end value add. So I'm pumping from here and it's being received there. That's the engineer's <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You want this amount of volume at this location, sure. So just to clarify your point, is that something that is sort of coming up and growing as a space that people need to sort of really start exploring? Do you find that there's a sort of a knowledge gap in the profession with regards to that? Or is it a resource issue or is it just simply a cultural mindset thing? Like, where's the gap there that people could fill? I mean, is is that even a profession, I guess, <laughs> would be a question. Like, are people actually just thinking about these things in that way? Yeah, no, I think it's actually all of the above, especially in the um, water, stormwater drainage space. We have a sort of green infrastructure team that, was in infancy four years ago. And some of it, again, like I said, bioswales have been done everywhere. It's not a new technology, but how you integrate a bunch of different systems effectively and still achieve the end goals, there aren't that many professionals who are that good at that, right? We have the US Army Corps, which is really, really good at building really big dams, but they are less familiar with the ins and outs of every city's own sewer system and stormwater system. It actually varies a lot by city across the United States, not to mention you know, our smaller towns and how all of those operate. So I think yeah, green infrastructure, it's not quite my area of expertise, but it comes up over and over again as really important. And it, of course, bleeds into other things, right? So If you can have a green infrastructure, then you're creating park space and park space can allow you to have green canopy and green canopy helps reduce the urban heat island. And then you can have more space for bicyclists to get where they want to go. So all of these things are connected and those folks who can understand the technical side of 
drainage and infrastructure, which is pretty technical, but still have that vision of how all these things connect together and greenery and what grows where and all of those things together. I think there aren't that many people who know that the ins and outs of that very well. But yeah, some of it's also about money. It's some of the most expensive infrastructure that any given city can face and some of its culture. But I, yeah, I think that the need is there for more people to be working in that space. That's interesting. There you go. So a lot of people can go out and sort of develop that field and, and become experts and yeah, please develop a new career field. And and it is a lot about money, but that's where I, I come back to our sort of reflect upon the sister cities concept that we have in the United States with many other cities that are internationally. And I don't know who's Denver's sister cities are, but Basically, I mean, there's got to be other things that can be learned from other cities. And as you mentioned, sort of your travels and looking at how sustainability is approached in various different climates and cultures is really something that we can just take advantage of. And I think from my perspective, highly encourage we take this international view because I have an expression right or wrong in my personal opinion, like there's no plagiarism in policy, Mm. right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if you have a good idea, just use it. Nobody's going to like come after you for it and say, oh, you stole our, our idea about greenery. Sincerest form of flattery, I think. Yeah, exactly. So I just, I think that there's some good ideas out there that we should all approach and, and start taking a, a wider international view of some of this. And and that is, in our space, that means that we have to take a wider view on some of the recommendations that we provide internationally to communities that are rebuilding, because it's also, it's, it's heavily adapted to sort of their culture and their environment. And you have to take sort of a snapshot of where they are today and where they want to go. And it's not always an application of like, here's the set of rule books, like go with this and here's your standards and start working in that direction. It is far more complicated than that because it's just an incremental progress. It's like, can we just get one step better? Then that national government has to take over responsibility for moving the nation in that right strategy and where they want to go from there. And so I think that's something that has to sort of it's just not an easy fix. It's not a quick fix. So that's something that is the biggest problem. I'm curious how much time you spend like connecting people. A lot of the time I feel like learning from other cities or nations is, comes down to trust in some ways and like actually going there and meeting the people who are, are doing the innovation is really key. And that's where some, I sometimes, yeah, wish I, I knew more international organizations were able to make those connections easily so that you don't just find the rule book or the paper, but you can talk to the people and learn what their lessons were, lesson learns were, and all that stuff. That kind of learning is really valuable, even though it may just be the same information that's in a report somewhere. Learning it from the people and meeting them in person, talking through the issues can be really helpful. It's extremely helpful. In some of our more recent work that we've done, it's invaluable to sort of, we've recently had a workshop in Poland and, you know, had 40 something people there and and had multiple discussions across multiple domains. But the idea is that, at least I think, is that you have to be open to ideas, you know, because I think one of the the biggest problems that I've seen, at least in the international space, is people come over with sort of preconceived ideas and notions about how things should be done. And when they encounter, like, it doesn't have to be that way. It's such a cultural and sort of paradigm shift for a lot of people to understand that the way they've been doing it is not always the right way, or it doesn't have to be that way. It is technically correct in accordance with their laws and standards and things like that, but it doesn't mean it's the only way. And I think people have to sort of be very, very open and confident in understanding that there's just different ideas and the way to approach these different projects, whatever, you know, sustainability or just infrastructure and things like that, because just the general idea is like, well, that would never work in our community. Generally comes up quite a bit. Yeah. Some of that comes down to PR and framing, but there are certain communities that 
you never want to mention in Colorado. No one says, this is not New York. <laughs> this is in Paris. doesn't matter what the idea is. <laughs> exactly. If it's not New York, don't mention New York. Yeah, you have to frame things certain ways. But yeah, creating that openness is really important. It's either that or you get people who are very good, like you're saying, that can fill this sort of knowledge space. And then they go out and they collect these ideas and then apply the same knowledge to a Denver scenario. Yeah. And then so they just say, well, that's a great idea. And then they just never, you know, they're never sort of aware of the fact that it is a New York idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this has been an, an interesting sort of conversation. We're a little bit more sort of larger theoretical and, and sort of strategic than, than what I originally thought we would be talking about, sort of the more technical stuff. But I think it's helpful to understand the challenges because those are really the issues that we're going to be facing if we do want to implement any type of new plans, designs, or community development coming up in the future. It's all going to be about the people and perspectives and culture that we have to shift. And I think we do have to recognize, like, there's a lot of perspectives out there and, and they're not too far separated from each other and they're not always wrong. And so we have to learn from others and, and what other communities are doing. And I see it in Europe quite a bit. I mean, if anybody ever goes to Amsterdam, I mean, you'll get just get assaulted by bicycles. They're everywhere. You can't drive a car anywhere. Even now for me in Europe, like we hesitate driving a car because it's just really problematic to park anywhere and traffic and everything else. So it's it's generally train, walking and bicycles, you know, which I imagine is also like in New York or any other sort of big city as well. Yeah. I think that that's something that we sort of just need to be aware of, but we're, we're not going to get around the human factor just to be able to implement the technology factor. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. Yeah. So this has been a great conversation. Thanks, Dana. I enjoyed having you on the show. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Well, I'm not a huge social media person, but I am on LinkedIn. I think I sent you my LinkedIn information and I'm happy to share my email too, if you like. So Dana.Hoffman. Yeah, we will definitely include your LinkedIn on the show notes so people can just connect with you that way. That's probably the easiest way in case they have any questions about the, the good work you're doing over in Colorado and working in that sustainability field. So thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate having you on and thanks for the conversation. Pleasure to talk with you, Kyle. All right, thanks.